last week we started a series called Foundations, Studies in Genesis 1 through 3, where I said that uh, the, the foundational questions that our culture is asking, the foundational questions of life, some of those major questions like, who am I, where do I come from, where am I going, what is life all about, questions about marriage and work and gender and ethics and human rights and racism and all of those things are actually, the answers to all of those questions can be found packed into the first three chapters of Genesis. And so we're taking a series of a roughly ten weeks to go through and look at some of those issues from the book of Genesis. And today, we'll talk about the foundation of life, the account of creation from Genesis chapter 1. There's much at stake when we talk about what Genesis 1 has to say about creation, and most of you are probably familiar that this is a very contentious debate uh, between uh, scientific naturalists and Christians. But it's also a contentious debate between Christians and different groups of Christians within the church and how this all works. And so I'd like to start this morning uh, getting us thinking by reading a little bit of an extended quote um, because this, this helps us to see what's really at stake uh, in this whole discussion. So I'll read it for you and you think about it. It says, It's been more than 160 years since the publication of Charles Darwin's Origin of Species in 1859. Darwin's work offered a comprehensive theory to explain in a totally naturalistic way the origin of our universe and life in it. Those who doubted the biblical account of beginnings now had, in the theory of evolution, a weapon of immense power for the escalating war between science and scripture. Scientists and non-scientists alike realized that what was at stake was not merely how life began, or how the natural processes of life work. The ultimate question was the place and significance of life, especially human life in our universe. Is mankind the result of a divine plan and divine action? Are humans the crown of creation with a God-ordained destiny? Does history have a rationale and purpose so that it's heading towards some divinely appointed goal? Or... Are humans the result of a long process of biological development from lower forms of life? A process not run by an intelligent designer, but goaded onward by random chance and subject to the mindless lottery of natural selection. As advancing scientific knowledge increasingly explained our universe without reference to God, it precipitated for many a major crisis of faith. Like That's what's at stake when we talk about creation. What's at stake is not just like the idea of, of human origins and like how did this all happen. It's actually a profoundly theological question. So I want you to think about it in these terms maybe will be more helpful. Where I came from actually impacts who I am, why I'm here, and where I'm going. It's like what I think about origins actually impacts my identity, my purpose, my destiny. You can see some of those things talked about um, as I read that quote. Like, is there actually divine purpose, or is everything just random chance? You know, that affects how we live, doesn't it? It affects how we view life and how we view our purpose in the world. Our identity. Like, am I just random cells that mutated and, and ended up together? Or is there actually more to it? Was, was I actually divinely crafted? As we'll see next week, all of our human identity and value and worth and significance comes from being made in the image of God. Most of the things that we see in our culture today related to how people approach even like sexuality is a result of evolutionary theory. And if I'm just a more highly developed form of an animal, then why not act like one? 
right? So there are profound implications for all areas of life as we talk about creation and the ideas behind creation. So one of the things that's happened is this, is that since the time of Darwin, Christians more and more and more have gone to Genesis chapter 1 with a scientific lens. We've taken our scientific lens, our microscope, and we've placed it over Genesis 1, and we've looked at Genesis 1, and we've tried to answer those, like, who or what created everything, and how did that happen, and, and especially, like, how long did it take, right? And, and that seems to be within the church, like, the, the big one is the how long did it take. And, and we tend to place a scientific lens over Scripture and read Genesis 1 in light of that scientific lens, I want to suggest something a little bit different this morning, but before I do that, because I know all of us have questions and thoughts and things about like the scientific process and how does science and creation, how do those things work together? Do they not work together at all? Do they work together completely? In a few minutes, I'm going to say that's not the purpose of Genesis, just so you're prepared. But I do think that there are some questions that need to be answered. So I'll quickly answer three. And I'll tell you, I'm, I'm not like a scientist. I wasn't trained in science, but I've done a lot of reading in the area. Um, in, in addition to that, this is not a science lecture. Collectively, we go, Shh, right? But, but let me say three things just really quickly about like, the, the science side of this. Number one is, is this. I think that as people who read the Bible and believe the Bible and, and, and take God at his word, I think it's important that we say that evolutionary theory— Underline the word theory, okay? Right? School, uh, university, students. Theory. Evolutionary theory must be rejected by Christians. And I mean by that naturalistic evolutionary theory because it completely takes God out of the equation. The, the, the idea that there was no God and that just through natural processes that this all happened, that's naturalistic evolutionary theory, and it's taken for granted in all secular science, almost all secular science today. Secular universities, public schools, all of those things. It's just National Geographic Channel, just completely taken for granted. As Christians, I don't think we can go there. One of the things that has happened is that the doctrine uh, or the, the theory, the idea of theist, theistic evolution came into play. And so when, when Darwin's uh, theory of evolution came out, Christians kind of freaked out a little bit. What are we going to do? Oh, my goodness, it seems like modern science is going this direction. We need to accommodate the Bible to that. And theistic evolution came out, which says that God essentially created through, like, the processes of, of evolution. Here's the problem with that. Like, aside from the science part, when I read God's word, not only in Genesis, but, like, throughout what God has to say in his word about creation— it doesn't fit philosophically in any way with what the Bible is trying to tell us about God and his creation. His word. In other words, any type of, of evolution, natural evolution or theistic evolution, undermines the foundation. It undermines the foundation that there is a great and mighty and powerful creator, God. And, and that's what scripture is getting at. So, so thing number one, whether it's natural or theistic evolution, I think we have to, to, to dismiss those theories, those ideas. The second thing that I think that we need to think about as we look at the different theories that are out there is that science must always be subservient to Scripture. Now, look, I've been practicing all week trying to say that. Science must be subservient to Scripture. I didn't even try to alliterate it. It just came out that way. But one of the things that's happened is, is this. And, and by the way, 
for some of you who have studied in this and thought about this and have tried to, like, what I'm not saying is that we dismiss or ignore science. Okay? Don't hear me saying that. One of the things that Christians have done a poor job of is, is intelligently interacting with different viewpoints and worldviews. Okay? I'm not saying that we dismiss science, but what I am saying is that we need to make sure that science is always like underneath the lens of, of the Bible. And so we get our science textbooks, or this, the theologies and the theories and all of those, and we put God's Word here, and then we put the science here, and we read it in that way. Because here's one of the things that, I, that, that has happened. There are theories such as the gap theory, uh, the day-age theory, progressive creationism, historic creationism, some of those different theories, uh, old earth creation theories that try to marry an old earth with what it seems like in science with what it seems like scripture is saying in, in young earth uh, ideology. And what it seems like is happening in those doctrines, when, when you look at, for example, the gap theory that says when you read Genesis 1-1, that was God's initial creation, and then there was a pause of billions of years, and at that time Satan fell, and God just kind of pushed pause on everything, and then after that there was a second act of creation. It just doesn't seem like a very natural way to read the text. I, I find it interesting how so many people will go to like the scientific findings which we always go to scientific findings with presuppositions, right? Theory, presuppositions, these things always factor in to the way that we interpret the Bible, the way we interpret science, the way we interpret any of those things. And, and it seems easier for people to believe that this happened by random chance over billions of years, or God set it all in motion, but it took billions of years, versus an intelligent designer spoken into existence. It just seems to me more natural to read that that's the case. And so when you look at some of these different theories, again, good Christian people hold day-age theory, that each day in Genesis is an age. Uh, the gap theory, which I already talked about, uh, historic creationism, some of these other theories. Like, good people hold some of these theories. My concern with those theories is it seems like we're trying to shoehorn the Scriptures, what Scripture says, into what we believe that science is saying. And again, I always like to point out, that science is always theory, and we come to it with presuppositions. Yet at the same time, we as Christians need to be willing to interact with those different positions and think about them. The third thing that I want to say, and the final thing before we get into the text of Scripture and look at what God's really saying here, is that all of this needs to be approached in humility and grace. One of the greatest disservice that young earth creationist Christians have done is treat the other side like they're idiots. How many of you have heard of Stephen Hawking? How many of you have heard of Richard Dawkins? How many of you have heard of Sam Harris? Christopher Hitchens? Not idiots. I tried to read Stephen Hawking. Tried for like 10 minutes, right? I have read Richard Dawkins. Smart, smart guys. Not idiots. Some of the people who, hold, who are Christians, who hold different views of creation than Young Earth, Literal 24 not idiots. And one of the things that we have done is kind of been very dismissive of that. Do you know what that makes us look like? When we say we hold this position that most other people don't hold and everybody else is an idiot, guess who looks like the idiot, right? And unfortunately, in the scientific community and in secular pop culture, Christians look silly because we have not approached this with humility and grace. I believe in young earth, 
Literal 24, consecutive, six-day creationism that puts me in a minority scientifically and an increasing minority theologically. But I think as I read the text and I put the text over the scientific evidence, I think there's explanation for the scientific evidence and the scientific theory. And I think that that's the best way to read scripture. But what I need to do is approach that with humility, approach that with grace. Because here's what's happened, is that people have read Genesis 1 for too long with the lens of science laying over it and it's produced all this argumentation do you think that when the writer of genesis is writing it down that he was thinking man i can't wait to see what these people do with this in the 20th and 21st century you think he was like thinking that i hope this really induces some great arguments among the people of god in years and, and ages to come no I'd like to propose this morning maybe a, a different lens to look at Genesis. And again, the scientific questions are important questions. I think the scientific questions can be addressed, but I think they're secondary. I think Genesis is meant to, to answer a different set of questions as we read it. And another way to think about it is this, that Genesis 1 was not written to combat Charles Darwin. Did you know that? Some of us are like, wait, what? No, it really was. Like Moses was there, and he's like, there's going to be this guy in like 3,000 years named Darwin, and i got to get this stuff down. And now he's in heaven, and he's like, I can't believe you're doing that with what I wrote. I just, it says day. It says morning and e evening and morning and day, and what are you doing? Right? No. You know why the Spirit of God superintended Moses to write this? So that God would be worshipped. Not so that Christians would fight over science. And those songs that we sang a few minutes ago, like, that's what it's about. It's about worshiping the creator God who was and is and is to come and has done these great things. And so we need to put that lens over it and maybe take our other lens and set it to the side and read it the way that it's intended to be read. Here's what I know about any time you open any passage of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. As a, a good Bible interpreter, that's anybody who opens the Bible, not just pastors or scholars, when you open God's word, there's one really, really, really important question that you ask every time you read any text of scripture. What was the original author trying to communicate to the original audience, right? And we would say, it can't mean something to us that it never meant to them. So what was the original author trying to say when he wrote Genesis 1? And what were the original hearer, hearers, those Hebrew people, actually hearing when they read Genesis 1? You see, that's the lens that we lay over this thing to see, like, what is God saying about himself and his creation that he really wants us to know? So let me tell you a little bit about the context of Genesis 1 that sometimes gets forgotten, because I think it actually, like, brightens this thing up a whole, whole bunch. We believe, the conservative view, I believe that Moses wrote the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, and they were like the founding documents for God's people, the nation of Israel. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, that they were the founding documents. They were the, the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, the Bill of Rights. They were all put there together, and they were to show God's people who they were and how God wanted them to act and to respond. So Moses wrote all of those, Genesis 1 being the beginning of that. Moses wrote them during the time of the Exodus event, okay? So God's people are coming out of roughly 400 years of slavery, 
in Egypt, and they're coming out of that, and then they're going to wander in the desert wilderness for 40 years. By the way, they're going to be surrounded by lots of pagan cultures. If you read that account, they're surrounded by pagan cultures all during that time, and then they're going to go into what's known as the promised land, and again, they're going to be surrounded by pagan cultures. And if you read those accounts after they go into the promised land and Joshua and Judges, you realize like there are false gods and idols everywhere in there, and that's what tripped them up. So the context of when Moses is writing these books is they come out of Egypt, pantheon of false gods. They're going into the promised land, pantheon of false gods. They're around the, the nations in the wilderness wanderings, false gods everywhere. They're completely surrounded by false gods. Do you know what they need? They need to know who their God is. They need to know the character and the nature of their God and what their God expects from them. Now, one of the interesting things is this, is that each of those cultures, and, and you can literally go back and read from these different cultures, that, that the Egyptians had, had, had their own stories about how the world exists and, and, and creation stories. And the Sumerian people, which is another people group in that day, had their own. And you can go back and you can read those. And all the Mesopotamian people that were around them had their own creation stories. And what the people of God needed is they needed their own creation story. In fact, they needed a creation story to combat those other creation stories. Most of those other creation stories had something to do with that the world was founded when the different gods got into a big battle with each other. And in one way or another, the, the winning god took the body of the, non, of the loser god and made creation out of it. So this is like epic battle that went on, and then one God prevailed over another, and then you had creation. And again, because origins and the questions of origins affect our identity and our purpose and our destiny, the people of God needed to know, how is our God different? How did we actually get here? What's actually going on? You see, that's the context that Genesis 1 was originally written in. It's interesting because sometimes people will take the Genesis account and they'll compare it to some of those other ancient Near Eastern accounts and they'll say, well, you know what, that Genesis account looks really similar to that other account that is, you know, from Sumeria or from Egypt. I think that God's people must have just borrowed from it and made it all up. There are places where you can look at the creation account in Genesis 1 and lay some ancient Near Eastern creation stories against each other and you're like, well, there's a lot of similarities. There are also some places where, it, very intentionally, there are some, some stark differences. What God is doing here is he's giving his people, in, in some ways, almost a, a propaganda. They all had their creation stories. And God's going to say, here's how it actually happened. Here's who's really in charge. In comparison with all these false gods and their understanding of how the world exists and how the gods work and how the people interact with the gods, here's what it really looked like. Here's what I really want you to know about me. And what he's going to call them to then is like worship through that. And what I want you to see this morning is that, you know what? Our culture is a culture that's not too indifferent from that culture, is it? And if Moses wrote this in roughly 1440 B.C., that means we've got over 3,000 years under our belt. And not many things have changed that there are competing theories for life and existence and purpose and meaning, identity, all over the place today, just like it was for the people of Israel. And in many ways, people are calling this the new exodus. That the people of God are a people surrounded 
by competing values and competing cultures and competing ideologies and worldviews. And that's why we need to read Genesis, not in light of just this basic scientific evidence, secondarily, sure, but primarily in terms of who am I? Who is my God? What is my identity? What is my meaning? What is my purpose? Because that's going to give us truth in a culture of lies about who God is and where we came from. Does that sound okay? All right, good. So we're going to open the text, and we're going to put that lens over it, and I'm going to try to point some things out this morning that we can see how God's actually doing that. And some of you are going to be really frustrated this morning. I told Pat, Pat said, we got verses 1 through 3 today, right? I said, oof, we got 1 through 26, and I'll probably even reference something in verse 31. Some of you are going to be frustrated. Well, you didn't answer all the questions. You didn't give me all the stuff. Don't worry. At the end, I'm going to tell you about some resources because you can study it for yourself. All right, good. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Awana students, one point, you get the win, right? We all memorize it. We all know it. But put it in the context of what I just talked to you about. In the beginning means that there was a... There was a beginning. In the beginning, God means that in the beginning there was already God. God is preexistent. God is eternal. But you know what's not? Matter is not eternal. A pantheon of gods is not eternal. False gods are not eternal. One God, eternal, preexistent, uncreated, uncaused, first cause. And then to everything else that there is a beginning. In the ancient Near East, that's propaganda. Right? In the ancient Near East, that's antagonism. In the ancient Near East, that's you're saying things that are intolerant and bigoted and racist. In the 21st century, take that to the University of Washington. I don't know if Dennis is here today or not, but my buddy Dennis Farron studied science in the University of Washington. And he said, then I read Genesis 1, and I'm a Christian. Right? Yeah. That's bigoted and racist and closed-minded and intolerant and totally, like, not academic. That in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Do you know what that's supposed to say? You know what it's supposed to say with those ancient Near Eastern creation stories and what it's supposed to say today? Again, there's one God, and he's preexistent, and he's the uncaused first cause. That the world doesn't exist by chance or just randomness. That there's actually purpose. There's actually order. This didn't happen by some cosmic battle between gods. And it didn't happen by some big fireworks show where the fireworks, like, didn't have an origin. And we don't know where they came from, but they were there, and then they blew up, and now we have this. Right? No. That our God is greater than all that. Genesis 1-1 starts out with a statement of propaganda against all other gods and all other ideologies. It, it was not accepted in that day, it's not accepted today, but that doesn't mean it's not true. When the people of God were in the Exodus saying, like, where's our God? Who is our God? What is he like? That's how he started to reveal himself to them. So that's a really cool verse. But then verse 2, like, it gets weird quick. And here's the thing. We memorize verse 1, and then we kind of pass over verse 2. Because verse 2 is weird. It says this. It says, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. You ever stop and think about that? Okay, so there was earth. Like God created the heavens and there's an earth. But it's without form. 
and it's void, and it was like all dark. It sounds like some of our closets, right? It's like formless and void, and things go in there, and they never come out, and it's weird, right? Here's the picture, okay? This is a, actually a really cool picture that gets kind of glossed over sometimes. All of those words, formless, void, dark, deep, seem to have ominous connotations. It seems to be kind of like at least mysterious, right? This is like a scene of mystery. There's some like ominous connotations. Now, this is God and God's creation. So like as good Christians, we're like, oh, it couldn't be anything bad or evil or chaotic or uh, wrong. We're not saying wrong. We're not saying bad. We're not saying evil. But if I read those words, it does sound ominous, right? Like we would all agree that if I came to your house and I said, this is a place that is like void and formless and, right? Yeah, chaotic. What the author is doing here is actually really important that he's painting a scene. Moses, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is painting a scene that's much like that. It's mysterious. It's, it's incomplete. It's unprepared. It's non-functional. That does not mean that God did something wrong or partial. That means it's only just begun. It means the work has begun, and now, from a literary context, like from, from reading these words, he's going to tell us what happens. And this, again, I don't want to keep going back to ancient Near Eastern things, but culture is important. And in most of those creation stories that I've referenced, there's some sort of chaotic scene some sort of mysterious scene and it usually happens over the face of the waters that the oceans were known in all these ancient systems as a place of chaos a place where the gods do battle with each other and and then to the victor goes the spoils and in some ways this scene is being painted so that when the people read that they would say oh this looks familiar but then god's going to jump off the page and do something about it in a way that the false gods never could so you see, we need to understand in verse 2 what he's actually doing. You see, he's setting the stage. Like in that context, verse 2, without form, void, dark, deep waters. And who's there the whole time? The Spirit of God is right there. That he's setting the stage for something marvelous and miraculous and glorious and amazing to happen. And then in verse 3 and following, he'll tell us exactly how that is Accomplished. Now, I'm going to break it into two categories. This is something I, I love that the, the author is doing here. And I think it's clear, but there's a little danger. And I just want to say something real quickly about that. That there's a, there's a theory, and it's, it's gaining steam in the understanding of, of Genesis, even from, especially from uh, some Christian scholars, and it's called um, the literary framework theory. And what it does is it kind of sees... Genesis, not, not as a true actual story, but as a, like a creation myth akin to all the other creation myths, and rather being a true story, that it's actually just another one of those stories where God is the victor. So it's basically like Israel's version of the comic book that tells who wins, okay? They lay out what I'm going to lay out for you here as a piece of their argument. So if you're familiar with that or not familiar with it or somebody comes up to you and says your pastor's a heretic, let me just say real quick, I'm not espousing a literary framework theory, okay? I've already told you where I stand on creationism and I believe that this is historical and accurate and real. But I do believe that it's literature and that as the Spirit of God superintended Moses to write it, he did it in a really important way. 
and I want you to see some of what's going on. So let's look at the days of creation. You've looked at them before, but I want you to see what, what God is doing here. So verse 3, day 1, And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. God created light. Now, some people think that God also created time right here because he named light day and night, and God created or gave the function of, of light, and he, he created the function of time. That's a possibility. But God created that light. He's forming. I want you to see God forming here. Verse 6, day 2. God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. Let it separate the waters from the waters. God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening. There was morning the second day. Day 2, God created the sky. Some people, again, also believe that God, this is where like weather came into be. It's interesting that like as you read that, you really like ancient Hebrew concept of the earth a flat disc some of you are like oh see there's proof i saw it on youtube and it's true again the earth is flat okay if you do all your scientific research on youtube or social media i might suggest alternate approaches but they thought that the earth was a flat disc and that the mountains actually like were the pillars that held up the sky and and that on the other side of the sky like there's a lot that goes into it. I won't bore you. But they had a very different concept of what it looks like than we do. I was watching with the girls Dude Perfect the other night. You guys know Dude Perfect, right? Great scientists. If you haven't seen them, you should probably look them up. Um, and one of them got to go to outer space, and they were, like, showing it. They're Christians, and so they were talking about how amazing it was. Like, the earth is round, people, right? They had a different concept of it. But on day two, God is forming that empty space. He's forming sky. Day three, verse nine. God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place. Let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together. He called seas and God saw that it was good. And day three, God wasn't done yet. Verse 11, God said, let the earth sprout vegetation and plants yielding seed, fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed. Each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seeds according to their own kind, trees bearing fruit, which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, there was morning, the third day. And so on day three, God is forming. He's forming the land. Verse 2 says that the earth was what? Formless. God is forming the formless on each of these days. And again, the picture that's being drawn is that there was this scene that was incomplete. There was this scene that was non-functional. And I think it's really interesting as well if you think about the functionality of each of these pieces. Light and time, the sky, the expanse and weather, land and vegetation and all that would be needed for that. And day one, two, and three, God is forming the formless. But watch this parallel that happens in verses 4, 5, and 6. Verse 14 says this, And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. Let them be for signs, for seasons, for days, and for years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. Now those two lights are called what? 
sun and the moon. It's weird. Why doesn't he call them the sun and the moon here? I think it's a specific reason. That the sun and the moon and, and all of those other pantheon systems were actually names for gods. And I think that God left the names out and Moses, through the Holy Spirit, left those names out so that there's absolutely no confusion about what we're talking about here or who's in charge here or any of those things. In some ways, he's saying to those other people, those other God believers, your God isn't even worthy of a name. God created the things that you make gods out of. But won't we do the same thing today? And he says there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. So day one, he made the light. Day four, he filled it. Sun, moon, and stars. Verse 20 says this, And God said, Let the waters swarm in the swarms of living creatures. Let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves and with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the waters of the uh, seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening, there was morning, the fifth day. And as you can see, the sky was filled with sea and air creatures. The sky wasn't filled with sea creatures, sorry. That'd be a comic, but get the point. Then finally, verse 24, God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock, creeping things, the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and it was so. God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. And then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And I'll stop there because that's next week's sermon is verses 26 and 27. But on day six, land, animals, and humans. What I want you to see there is called forming and filling or bringing function, bringing what God had created to its intended purpose. And if in verse 2, we're supposed to see this scene of mystery, after we read through the rest of those verses, there's intended to be absolutely no mystery at all. We're not supposed to have any kind of wondering as to who did it or how it was done or when it was done or any of those things. What we're supposed to do is look directly at God and say, God created. What we see in that parallelism right there is order. And that order is the foundation for order of all of life. What you see is purpose and intentionality. You see the great God taming the chaos, as it were. And for any people in any culture in that day that read the creation story of the people of God, they would have seen something very, very, very different than what they understood about creation and the creation of the world and creation of, of things. But they saw order and intentionality and purpose and power, and they saw the greatness of who God is. And if that's not enough, we'll look at a couple of other pieces to this puzzle. You notice about seven times you have the words, and God said. This is, and God said, dot, 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 something happens. And then after that, the text says repeatedly, what, what phrase? Give it to me. It was good, but before that, God said, dot, 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 and it was so. That's kind of important. Because instead of, again, instead of like God's fighting it out and then things happen, when God spoke and it was so, was there, was, was there any struggle? Was there any battle? Was there any sweat 
and blood and tears and agony and question and wondering. Was there any of that? And God said, and it was so. And God said, and it was so. And God said, and it was so. And repetition is important in any language. In the Hebrew language, it was very important. And he says it over and over and over again. God said, and it was so. And you're supposed to see that there's no struggle there. There's no battle there. You know why? There's no question there. If I have a pantheon of gods vying for creationary uh, supremacy, there's question. And who's the greatest? There's never any question in Genesis as to who's in charge and as to who's the greatest and as to what he's up to. And that's what you see when it says God said and it was so. And then the phrase that you all just nailed just a minute ago, and it was good, and it was good, and it was good. Some of you are creative people. I've got some daughters who are creative people. Some of you guys are woodworkers who are very creative and and creative with lots of different mediums. I am not a creative guy, okay? Like, I try to make things, and it's formless and void, and darkness is over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God is not hovering anywhere near it. He's, in fact, rejecting it. (laughs) Oh. Some of us know what it means to create something to look at me like, that's pretty good. You know when God stepped back and said it was good? It's so much more than that. There's a moral aspect to the goodness. God created and he looks at it and he says, without defect, as it should be. This is whole. This is right. This is what I intended it to be. It's morally good, but it's also functionally good as well. A big piece of what is on the screen behind you is the understanding of the functionality of what God has created. I'll tell you this. I was going to save it for later. I wrote it down like last minute. But think about it like this. Life functioning the way that it's supposed to. We only see that in the first two chapters of this entire book. Think about it. Like life actually functioning the way that it's supposed to. You only get a glimpse of that in the first two chapters of the book. When God created, up until the time of Genesis 3 in the fall, when God created, that's the only time that life has like really functioned the way that it was supposed to in all aspects. So embedded in the creation account is a blueprint for how life is supposed to work. That's why when I talk to you about gender in a few weeks, this is not my idea or ideology that I made up. This isn't like my Christian hobby horse because I'm bigoted, racist, and intolerant. It's because there's a blueprint for how all of life is supposed to work, and it's laid out in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. And when you follow the blueprint, life works right. When you don't follow the blueprint, Genesis 3, things go sideways. And we have to see that in here, that in Genesis 1 and 2 is the blueprint, the functionality for how everything is supposed to work. The roles of men and women that we saw displayed here this morning that most people today would laugh and scoff at. Foundationally found in Genesis 1 and 2. See, it matters for everything, doesn't it? Like it really is foundational. The fact that God was forming and that God filled and that God gave that sense of functionality to all things really has ramifications for the way that we see all of life and all of the world. And that's what he was doing right there. What I want you to see this morning is some things about God as well. Because when the people of God read the story of God, God's creation pointed to God the creator. And what would they have understood? They would have understood that God is supreme. 
Is there any question? When we put that lens over Genesis 1 and we read it, is there any question who's in charge? Is there any question who this belongs to? Is there any question as to who the authority is here? No. God is supreme. God is powerful. Just in speaking the words, the creation happens. That God is all-powerful. That God is active. You see, again, something very different from other creation stories and the, cre- and, and the stories of origins that are being offered today is that God is present and that God is active, that he's actively involved in all steps of this process. Chapter 2 gets even more amazing because it's the relational account of creation and how God was active and present relationally. We'll look at it a little bit more next week. Creation shows that God is creative. There's a song that we sing at camp, and it has to do with, like, a platypus and some different things like that. Like, who could make this stuff up? Right? Like, you seen a platypus? Right, who makes this stuff up? Billions of years? Anyway, God is creative. And you know what's super cool is that we can understand that God created the heavens and the earth. We can understand that God said, let there be light. We can understand that God said, you know, uh, created the sun, the moon, and the stars. And we understand, like, the universe from that. But, but then when they launch the next telescope, and you can see further into the universe, and it shows even more of God's greatness and God's goodness, and then people try to say, yeah, but that happened by this other thing. Like, it just keeps expanding God's greatness and God's amazingness and God's power. The more we learn, it's not like, oh, God really wasn't very powerful or very creative. It's just like more creative and more creative and more creative. God is purposeful. You think that was important for the people of God as they were wandering around in the wilderness? I know God said we had this promised land. Like, is it really going to happen? The fact that God was purposeful meant something to them. Does that mean something to you today? As you look down the barrel of whatever it is that you're looking at and saying, God, I didn't expect that to come. God, I wasn't expecting that diagnosis. God, I didn't expect that death. God, I I didn't see that. God is purposeful. And God is orderly. Like there is a, there's order to the creation account. There's no room for randomness. There's no room for chance. There's no room for anything other than a creative and orderly and purposeful and powerful God. As I said at the beginning, and I'll, close with this because we've got a cool song and I told him that like I got to get done so we can sing the song at the end it just seems fitting it's called the stand and it's really good but the question of origins impacts everything it impacts our identity it impacts our purpose it impacts our destiny it's the foundation of meaning it's the foundation of purpose purpose and significance it's the foundation of our order. It's the foundation of our reason and our rationality. And it's also the foundation of our eternal destiny. Without getting into it today, because there's not time, there's creation, Genesis chapter 1. The end of Revelation is called recreation, the new creation. You think it's a mess now? Do this for me. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, it's a mess better things are coming now i'm saying it has to get worse first but better things are coming in the end read the end of the story recreation but genesis 1 is the foundation for all that and i hope if you see anything this morning you see that there's a way to read this to see god and see who he is and that impacts your identity your purpose your destiny all of those things